Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. Today, we are joined once again by TBL Legal Correspondent and partner at Amundsen Davis Law, Joe Carlosari. Joe, welcome back to the show. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. People seem to love these episodes. And at this stage, I mean, you know, there's so much going on in the crypto legal space. It's almost like this is a monthly affair. Yes, um, weekly. But, uh, but our viewers love it. Weekly affair at this point, right? Um, we're happy to have you back. And uh, yeah, things are crazy. I mean, again, that's uh, illustrated by the frequency of your appearances. So talk to us for a second. We've had huge news uh, at uh, late August, August 29th, that Grayscale won its case against the SEC, but the SEC blocked it from filing a spot Bitcoin ETF. Walk everybody through what's going on here. So Grayscale filed a petition originally for review that eventually found its way up to the D.C. Uh, court of Appeals. Uh, it's a federal court. And effectively, uh, what the ruling was, was that uh, they found that the SEC's treatment of the futures-based EPTs, the futures-based uh, ETFs effect effectively, uh, and its treat of the spot ETFs in terms of denying their applications, their registration statements, that they were being treated in an inconsistent manner. Um, now, the one thing that's like kind of shocking about this opinion, or the biggest shock, is that to, to meet a standard of arbitrary and capricious, which was the standard of review for the SEC's ruling, that is an extremely high bar. There has to be some, uh, basically just some rational basis effectively for why they're treating these two different products similar. So it's a high bar to meet for the applicant for, in this case, Grayscale, to prove that there's no logical reason, really, there is no uh, justification rationally for why you would treat these two differently. And I will tell you, courts, uh, the way the system is designed for agency review, they give a lot of deference to um, commissions like the SEC. They say, you know, you're the one who best understands this marketplace. You have the resources and you have the personnel and experience to assess it and apply the correct standards under 6B5, which um, in, in this particular case, the, the court system was basically saying, we think you have no rational basis for treating these two products dissimilar. Um, they actually say that uh, on page 13 of the opinion that the commission has never explained why grayscale owning Bitcoins rather than Bitcoin futures affects the CME's ability to detect fraud. And what really the issue was and the, the position taken by the SEC on uh, appeal is that, you know, it's not our job to prevent fraud. Uh, the reason why we're denying the spot applications is because we do not believe we have the ability to detect fraud in the underlying markets. And the reason why they say they can't detect fraud is because the majority of the spot liquidity is offshore outside the United States. It's on exchanges that are black boxes where we as the commission cannot determine exactly what is going on. Is it real trading? Is it spoofing? Is the volume being faked? Is it people trading against uh, uh, their own customers as is alleged against the student Binance? So they're, they're really uh, sort of cautious about approving the spot market. Now, the logical inconsistency has always been, well, why did you approve the futures market, right? Because futures and spot have a symbiotic relationship with one another. So effectively, with this opinion that we got, it's that there really is no significant difference, no real reason why you should treat these two products uh, dissimilarly. And uh, from the standpoint of the SEC, you know, they offered, well, that's because we can detect fraud in the CME futures, but they didn't really sort of address the underlying issue, uh, which is, well, what if the futures are manipulated via manipulation of the spot? So, the, so where we go from here, I think, is probably the interesting question. I'll just summarize and probably give you a chance to ask some follow-ups. Um, the commission did not explicitly rule that the spot ETF should be approved. 
uh, excuse me, the court system. The court did not rule that. The court did not find SEC, you have to approve this. What the court said is that the order denying Grayscale's application was arbitrary and capricious, meaning it lacked a rational basis, meaning it lacked uh, a, a credible uh, reason why they were taking the position they did. What the SEC can do really is here at this is two paths. They can basically say at this point, okay, we're, we were wrong. We're going to pivot effectively. We're going to change our position and say, we're going to prove these ETF structures. Alternatively, they could say, no, we're going to apply a different rationale for why we're denying uh, the spot ETFs. That's the alternative. And I guess the, the third far less likely one, which but it's still possible, you should think about it, um, is that they say, well, maybe we'll just go back and revisit the decision on the futures ETFs. We can just say, we, we never should have approved the futures in the first place because the underlying spot market affects the futures price and we don't believe the, the spot market has sufficient uh, anti-fraud detection measures in place. Fantastic, Joe. Thank you. Very comprehensive, very succinct explanation. So the courts took a look at this, this, you know, SEC rejection. Um, and, and obviously, Grayscale's suit was to appeal this rejection and have the application be reconsidered. And they essentially said the precedent that you set with the futures ETFs and approving those, uh, it makes no sense as to why you would shoot down a product um, that is, you know, the, tracking the exact same underlying market. Yeah, let me give you um, one, one quote real quick before I interrupt your train of thought, though. Um, one quote from the opinion, which I think is very telling, is on page 14, they say, Grayscale provided evidence that the CME Bitcoin futures prices are 99.9% .9 correlated with the spot market prices. Based on that data, fraud in the spot market would present identical problems for the Bitcoin futures e ETP. Bitcoin futures are derivatives of Bitcoin. So long as the market is efficient, arbitrage, arbitrage will drive the prices together. So they're effectively saying, Joe, that you can't, you can't treat these two things differently because they're tied at the hip. Absolutely. And that only makes sense. So for the SEC, if their mission here is to, if their mission here, if we're taking them at their word, is to um, get products that have these manipulated markets out of the hands of consumers, then wouldn't the path of least resistance be to, just like you said, if they want to play hardball, retroactively deny the futures ETF applications? So that way, rather than approving spot ETFs, now that the court has called them hypocrites, essentially, wouldn't the path of least resistance for them be retroactively denying the futures ETFs? Or am I reading too much into that? No, uh, I think that the path of least resistance would probably be to approve the applications. Um, and let me explain why. And, and again, I really want to harp on this because I think it's a common point of confusion among people following this at home. The goal of the SEC, as stated in the appellate court rationale, is that the goal of the SEC is to not prevent manipulation. It's not to prevent fraud. In fact, they fully acknowledge, Joe, a, a common sense position, which is there's no way to m prevent all fraud in commodities markets. And that's why after the fact, they have to bring enforcement actions. What they're trying to do is they're trying to be able to detect manipulation, to detect fraud. Mm. And if there are tools to detect it, they then at that point, they can say, okay, we're an enforcement uh, commission. We can go forward and we can file an action against the manipulators. We can root it out after the fact. But, you know, I'm sure most people listening to this program uh, may be familiar with alleged manipulation of precious metals markets and how there are actions that are brought against big players who have, quote unquote, manipulated the price by a few pennies here and there and made a ton of money. That sort of action is what the SEC wants to be able to, to bring forth in the Bitcoin market. 
They want to be able to do that. And they thought, well, we have these surveillance sharing agreements, the futures market, even if Bitcoin's manipulated, we'll be able to detect manipulation of the futures market. Now, what you to answer your question, why wouldn't they just deny the futures? They could. Um, I think there was a question and I, put, I tweeted it out. So if we were to agree with the petitioners here and hold that the commission has to treat these two products or that they have not treated the like products alike, would the commission um, look to approve the spot product or would it go back on its approval of the futures product? I don't know if you can say. I mean, I, can't speak to what the I, know, I cannot speak to what the commission would do when I don't want to prejudge what the commission would do. But certainly, you know, if, if you disagreed uh, with uh, the commission's position here and sent it back, the, the commission would have to uh, to to think about the the, the issues anew. Um, but what it, you know what it would do with the prior orders, I can't. Remember. But I would like to answer. There's actually a great back and forth uh, video. Uh, where the judge in this case, which ended up ruling in favor of Grayscale, asked the SEC, uh, if we disagree with your position, we find that the spot ETF um, denial was arbitrary and capricious. Doesn't that mean that you should take a look at the futures uh, futures prices, the futures um, markets in, in, in themselves and probably consider it? And the SEC lawyer actually answers. He says, listen, I don't want to prejudge and speak for the commission. However, I'm sure the commission will look at everything anew if you were to rule in this particular circumstance. So I think right now what they're going to do is they're going to have to, um, you know, revisit everything to develop a comprehensive policy for futures and spot. However, to your question about the path of least resistance, it is hard institutionally for them to go, you know, effectively uh, retroactively reverse their decision on the futures ETPs when those are in market, right? There are customers out there who own those shares. And if they were to unwind that, that potentially could destabilize the market as well, which is something the SEC considers when they're making their ruling. So in other words, do they want to disrupt the already sort of workable status quo, take a drastic measure of undoing the futures, or is the path of least resistance, as you put it, just to allow the spot ETFs to market? Mm, fascinating. Okay. So, so from the standpoint of not being disruptive, the path of least resistance seems to be approving these ETFs. One question I have for you then um, is what has happened since this ruling? Uh, we've seen several ETF decision dates or verdicts get delayed. What's the story there? Well, I will tell you that the, the mode of operation for the SEC for all of these products going back years now has been to delay until the final deadline. Statutorily, they have to respond within a certain deadline, but nothing prevents them from issuing multiple extensions. And even in the cases where they have denied prior applications, they have waited until the 11th hour, meaning they have exhausted all of their statutorily permitted denial periods. Okay, so that's nothing new. So you have to be cautious when you're reading something into a development that is not really a development that's kind of par for the course right in the case of the futures etps they uh, even though they ended up approving those they actually delayed ruling on them till the last possible date right they delayed ruling after multiple uh, sort of periods where they could have they could have answered they could have said these are approved or not approved they waited to the 11th hour and then they were allowed to basically list and keep in mind when those things came to market and were greenlit, they didn't issue an opinion saying, here's why we're approving the futures-based ETFs. They kind of let the time run out. And then eventually when there was no order barring it, denying the application, uh, it becomes uh, 
permitted to trade. That's generally the simplest way. There's a little nuance there, but the simplest explanation is that they ran out the clock and then it just came to market. And um, you know that, that's why you don't see a ruling out there or some sort of order articulating why the futures were let through. But, and, and honestly, that was probably detrimental to the SEC that they weren't able to articulate their position for why they believed the futures were sufficiently um, uh, robust in terms of surveillance until you actually got litigation from Grayscale. Then they you know, developed their argument more fully. Fantastic. So taking off, taking off the law cap for a second, putting on the markets cap really quickly, we've been talking about ETFs for now going on 12 minutes. Um, explain to the viewers uh, what the, you know, what a spot Bitcoin ETF would mean. Um, you know, what is out there right now for investors to gain exposure uh, to Bitcoin? And what would a spot Bitcoin ETF or several spot Bitcoin ETFs mean uh, for obviously investor optionality to get exposure, but ultimately Bitcoin liquidity. Sure. So right now, all of the products on market, these ETPs slash ETFs, they're in, in very similar structures. What they are is they're, they're, they're vehicles by which you can trade like a stock. Okay. That's the thing, simplest way. Shares of a vehicle that hold underlying assets or derivatives. So in the case of the futures ETFs, you're buying a structure, you're buying a vehicle and the underlying vehicle buys futures contracts. Now, for those unfamiliar with futures contracts, I'll give you the simplest explanation. They're a contract with an expiration at a certain price, right? So you can gain a secondary exposure to an asset um, through the vehicle. So instead of you having to set up an account uh, on Schwab or Fidelity or any of the other um, interactive brokers that trade futures and, and trade the contracts yourself, which you can, by the way, any retail investor who has sufficient experience and meets the criteria, they can go trade the futures products directly. They can rely on something very simple, pull up your Robinhood retail app, whatever one of choice, and you could buy BITO, which is a vehicle that holds the futures and you can gain a proxy for Bitcoin price action. Now, obviously, you can buy Bitcoin directly if you're a U uh, U.S. retail customer, but a lot of folks and a lot of money is trapped in traditional investment accounts where they can only buy securities and BITO is a security traded. That's why I fall, even though underlying it has futures contracts, which are CF, uh, uh, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission uh, jurisdiction. The security of the BITO, the, the, the securitization of the futures contracts is what BITO is. So now what the, the ETF is, is basically is a similar vehicle. It's an exchange traded fund where they are acquiring actual Bitcoin. So they have a trust vehicle that acquires Bitcoin and holds it on your, your behalf. Similar to the GBTC, the main distinction between it is that the exchange traded structure allows Bitcoin to flow in and out in, in, a, in a way of like sales, actually, where the shares more closely match the nav. So just think of it this way. When the, when the, when the closed end trust, the GBTC, acquires Bitcoin, it goes into a big honeypot. And really, the only way that Bitcoin ever comes out is if it's used to pay for fees. Okay, that's the problem with the trust, because when there's a downturn in the Bitcoin price action, GBTC cannot, um, there's some nuances, but they largely cannot sell the Bitcoin they hold. They're, they're stuck with it. So if market demand dries up, Bitcoin uh, in the, the GBTC can trade at a huge discount to its net asset value. You could have Bitcoin that they hold be worth a billion dollars and it, the shares of the trust could actually trade at 500 million, could trade at 50% discount, which is, you know, really difficult if you're an investor because you're saying, 
man, I've got this, these great shares and the shares are ownership in the trust and the tr trust itself has assets well in excess of a billion dollars. Why is it trading at 50% discount? So it's very frustrating for people. And actually, I think it drives people away from wanting to own that vehicle. However, with an ETF, all you have to do to arb out the discount, to get rid of the discount is you sell some of the Bitcoin. So as an investor, you have confidence that the shares you hold have a more close tie to the net asset value, which is what you really want, right? You don't want to be sitting on Bitcoin that the fair market value is 25,000 and the vehicle is trading at 17,000, okay? That, that's not right, right? And, and, and also the higher fees that the GBTC is, uh, is, is, um, uh, you know, is using to uh, host those Bitcoin. That's really something else that's not typical in ETF structures. So you've got this whole situation where I believe there's a lot of institutional money. There's a lot of uh, uh, even retail money, I think, that would love to own a vehicle that closely tracks the price of Bitcoin. Futures is, is, is sort of a flawed vehicle for a lot of different reasons because of role and problems with futures contracts. And the spot uh, is a better vehicle, but we don't have a structure that allows the spot ETF to closely track the NAV. That's the big problem. If you had that, I think you open a lot of doors and a lot of institutional money to coming into Bitcoin. Hmm. Absolutely. So it's all about that overnight redemption mechanism, that overnight premium yes. or discount that gets narrowed. That's what makes ES1 or the um, uh, any other kind of uh, SPX or any other kind of ETF that tracks underlying uh, underlying uh, indices or stocks so attractive. Um, yeah, just think about so if you if you imagine this, imagine if there weren't ETFs for the S&P 500. OK, they're only closed end trusts. And you hold held closed end trusts, which acquired shares in uh, in ES or in SBY. But then your shares in your closed end trusts don't match what you see every day on CNBC with the market price of the S and P five hundred. That would be extraordinarily frustrating. You'd be like, wait a second, the S and P went up two percent today, but my closed end trust shares of the S and P five hundred went up 05 percent. That would be so frustrating from an investment standpoint. It would push a lot of money to say, you know what, I'm not going to even mess with this trust structure. I'm going to put my money elsewhere. Um, but let me just speak real quickly because I didn't answer the the issue of the deadlines. So now they, mm -hmm. they delayed all these deadlines and there's really a key deadline coming up in the middle of October. I believe it's October 17th. October 17th, the SEC has two options. They can, again, either approve or, uh, well, actually three. They can approve, deny, or delay. And the, the money, your, the smart money should be on delay, right? Because that's their default, okay? You should always, from a probability standpoint, go with what is, what is par for the course and then sort of extrapolate out from there. Smart money should be on a delay, which in that case would kick it to the final um, period, which they have to respond, which is in early 2024, Q1, effectively, of 2024. Mm -hmm. um, now, they could, they could uh, choose to do something differently, but here's what I know for sure, and that's what the listeners want to know. If we do not get a change in policy by the middle of October, you should not expect an approval of the ETF, the spot ETF, at any point in 2023. We're going to take a quick break to talk about Passport. This is a device by Foundation Devices, Bitcoin hardware wallet that you already know how to use. It has a gorgeous design and a very sleek and familiar interface, so you'll know how to use it the moment that you take it out of the box. If you've been on the fence about taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, this is the hardware wallet for you. Several exchanges that offer Bitcoin have turned out to be totally bankrupt over the last year, and if you leave your Bitcoin on exchanges, you're leaving yourself open to your Bitcoin being completely gone. With 
With Passport, it takes just a few minutes to set up and experience the peace of mind that comes with taking your Bitcoin off exchanges and into your own hands. Take responsibility today. Go to foundationdevices.com and use code BitcoinLayer for $10 off your Passport or just click the link in the video description. Now, on with the show. Okay, excellent. So this is the next big deadline that's coming up unless we see some big hallmark change in the way the SEC is doing things par for the course is they kick the can once again until the next deadline, which is in 2024. Correct. Okay, excellent. Well, let's talk about really quickly and, and you could also give uh, thoughts on the the ETFs as we talk about it. But the SEC versus Binance case, it gets more and more interesting by the day. And you have great coverage of it over on Twitter at Joe Carlosari for our viewers to go follow in real time over there. But uh, the last that I really, um, you know, knew of this, the last big news story that I, I remember from this is that Binance missed a deadline uh, for an audited uh, accounting statement. I, I could be wrong there. Um, talk to us about the current state of the SEC versus Binance case. Yes. So for legal nerds like me who love high stakes litigation, you know, bet the farm litigation, um, bet the company litigation, that's what I, I eat, sleep and breathe. Um, I love following this. And I love the fact in particular that I'm not involved in it in any way. So I can sort of just look back and sort of appreciate both sides gamesmanship and both sides arguments. Um, so let's go back to the beginning very quickly. SEC filed against Coinbase and Binance, but there is a huge difference between the nature and tenor and uh, sort of uh, posturing in each of the two suits. Bi the Binance suit filed by the SEC was far more hostile, I would put it, than the Coinbase suit. There are allegations in both suits that are similar, and we cover that on a prior episode that I suggest people look at. Um, but what I will say is the big, the huge difference is that when the Binance suit was filed, you'll recall, Joe, that they filed actually a temporary restraining order, a TRO. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So the TRO is an extraordinary remedy. Uh, unlike the orderly, orderly normal process of litigation, when a case is filed, it can take months before the parties even appear and do discovery. And then it can take a year before they file dispositive motions uh, to try to have the judge rule on the case as a matter of law. Well, in SEC versus Binance, right out of the box, they filed an an extraordinary remedy, which is a TRO, which is uh, basically a request that the court act immediately, that the court needs to act to prevent irreparable harm. It's extremely high standard on, under the law. And they have to prove, the SEC had to prove a substantial likelihood of success, meaning it, the whole timeline of litigation gets sped up. And if you're ever facing a TRO or uh, prosecuting a TRO, you know that that is extremely stressful. It's high stakes. It's um, you know, hours where days where you're not sleeping because the court is going to put everything on an expedited schedule because you're going to the court saying, judge, if you don't act now, there's going to be a permanent harm visited upon somebody. So that's what the SEC's position was. They filed a bunch of proofs and evidence to support their TRO and Binance's lawyers appeared in court and they said, there's no need for a TRO. We've got this all under control. They were, they were smart, right? They were trying to be reasonable and they made concessions to the court and to the SEC so as to alleviate their concerns about customer assets disappearing, about being the next FTX and everything falling apart. They actually agreed to a consent order um, and they agreed to provide by August 1st a accounting, okay? 
And part of that agreement was the basis for why the judge said this TRO is not really necessary. You've got a consent order. We're just going to move forward. And they are agreeing to the court's jurisdiction for at least some of these relief that some of the relief you're seeking in the TRO. So what happened? Well, they got close to August uh, and they didn't uh, they weren't able to meet the deadline for providing the accounting. They actually sought an extension to provide the accounting to August 7th. And then thereabouts, I think the 6th or the 7th, we don't really know because it's not public. Um, the, the Binance provided some document, which they purport to be some kind of an accounting um, detailing where customer assets were, what had been moved, where the keys were, who's in charge, that sort of thing. After that was provided, um, the SEC continued to claim it was insufficient, that it wouldn't uh, sh uh, ensure that customer assets were safe and secure in, in the United States. They had a whole host of other issues they were seeking from Binance. And then on August 14th, Binance filed an additional motion seeking a protective order, basically trying to undo part of the agreement they had originally made in the consent order. They're effectively saying we want a protective order blocking the SEC from taking the deposition of CZ and other officials within uh, Binance. And the, the end of their motion for protective order, I, I tweeted it out, I really think it's telling, they say, although it that the SEC has expressed concerns about customer assets, the SEC has yet to identify any evidence suggesting that customer assets were misused or dissipated in any way. I always think that that sort of language right there, you have to be really sure that the, that your opponent does not have strong evidence that assets were dissipated or misused, because if they do and you leave that meatball out there, the other side can absolutely stomp on it and show judge their own lawyers now are saying there's no evidence. Well, here's the evidence. Here's why you need to really drop the hammer hard on them and impose everything we want from a discovery perspective. So from that filing on August 14th, flash forward, which is just four days ago, we get a new sealed filing. Um, I will tell you to seal an entire filing like this is not something the SEC does lightly. Courts are a public forum. Uh, generally, uh, the, the public and the press and people following it have a right to know what uh, the the uh, the authorities, what their government is effectively arguing and why it's arguing that. Um, and the SEC, as a matter of course, typically does not try to seal the entirety of their filings. There are a few exceptions. The exceptions would be if there's a national security issue, if there's an ongoing criminal investigation, if there's imminent threats to people's health and safety, then they would probably take the extra step of trying to seal a filing. But for the SEC to file something like this, you can rest assured that there is something in there that it would severely disrupt the marketplace if it were brought to light. Okay, they wouldn't just be filing, uh, you know, sort of perfunctory motions under seal with a ton of supporting affidavits, a ton of supporting informations, unless they were really trying to safeguard um, some adverse impact of having this all out in the public domain. Now, we, again, I want to caveat: it's all speculation. I don't want people to, you know, uh, jump to conclusions. But I will tell you. I don't recall a case, certainly none I've been involved with, and certainly none that uh, anyone who deals with the SEC regularly has been involved with, where they took the steps of filing such a comprehensive motion under seal. Uh, generally, it's something, uh, generally, that's just not their habit in practice. So I will tell you, that's very much something that people should be at least following closely. 
Um, we might not know what it is for days, but it, but like Binance's lawyers know what it is, and the judge now knows what it is, and the judge is going to look at everything Binance is doing with the skepticism of whatever the SEC put forth in that document. Absolutely, and I, I'd imagine that that's going to be the make or break as to whether or not, now that the judge knows about it, whether or not the judge grants a TRO. Well, the TRO sort of issue is kind of uh, fallen by the wayside. What, what what we're at now is we're at motions to compel. You know, we're at motions for a protective order. We're arguing about discovery. And what the SEC is saying is they say we need advanced expedited discovery because if we don't get that advanced expedited discovery, there's a potential for customer assets to disappear a la FTX. Mm. And, you know, I mean, just to, to venture off into the realm of um... – conjecture, but with some evidence behind it. I know you're not involved in this case, but for me, I mean, Dylan has been following the Binance saga closely. I myself have. There have been several instances, reported instances, where um, customers' collateral, uh, customers' uh, funds have been removed from uh, the platform, used as collateral elsewhere, and then slowly redeposited over the course of several months. So there are instances of this and proven instances of it on chain. Um, and, you know, it, it begs the question, what is in that sealed document? Um, it, it's certainly the, the big question on my mind. Do you want to venture a guess as to what may be in there or, or why it's so substantial that it had to be sealed? No, I mean, I, if, 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 if this is a pure guess, pure guess. Um, but I will say that the most likely scenario would be some sort of active DOJ investigation. And you will recall there have been public reports of active DOJ investigations out there. Um, but, but I, you know, with crypto, if you deal with it long enough, it's so opaque and difficult and it takes time and, and it, you can always figure it out, right? There's always an accounting, there's always on-chain data, there are records, but you always have this question as to uh, if you're an enforcement agency or if you're DOJ, do you have a complete set of the records? And prosecutors move very slowly they want to have every single I dotted and every T crossed before they do anything. And this might be a circumstance where the DOJ and SEC are sort of working in tandem. The SEC thinks we have enough to really act here and there are political reasons why we have to act. But the DOJ says we just don't have enough yet. We need to be careful and patient. So it might be that type of thing where, you know, the DOJ either is in, uh, in the process of getting a sealed indictment or um, they, they have one already, but for whatever reason, politically, they don't want to reveal it. There could be a lot of reasons. Okay. But I, I would say that if you're going to go from a probability standpoint, a DOJ, um, investigation that's ongoing is probably the most likely scenario. But let me just tell you to me, if you're the judge in this case, and you're looking at this from the standpoint of, I don't want to be involved or complicit, or, uh, I wouldn't want to permit rather that's the right word another FTX to occur because of everything that happened, how many customers were harmed last year. You are focused squarely on one thing. You're saying, I'll deal with all the legal arguments down the line. I'll rule on my motions for summary judgment when they come and after discovery. But I really want to make sure there's no imminent collapse of the Binance ecosystem that harms U.S. customers. To that end, I think the, the one, you know, sort of uh, smoking gun piece of evidence that the SEC needs, the slam dunk piece of evidence, whatever you want to call it, would be is are funds flowing from Binance US into the international entity? Now, the SEC alleges that they are. The SEC alleges there's no distinction between the US entity and the international entity. Well, I can tell you this from a discovery perspective, if assets are flowing from the domestic Binance US into the international, even if it's a dollar, 
right? You open the door effectively to Binance's entire operation having to turn over their books and records for full accounting and auditing purposes to the SEC. If that were occur to occur, my guess is that's where the bodies are going to be found in terms of you know what's really buried there. And I believe that that is an existential threat to Binance. They're going to fight tooth and nail. If I were their counsel, I would be fighting as hard as possible to keep this walled to the U.S. entity and allow nothing uh, to be seen behind the curtain of the international. That is the whole fight. Um, if you had a gun to my head, I would say at some point there was likely money moved back and forth because of some of the evidence the SEC has already put forward. And if that's the case, the entire Binance ecosystem uh, is at jeopardy. Wow. The entire Binance ecosystem is at jeopardy. And by extension, uh, that's not very good for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the largest, or Binance rather, is the largest crypto exchange and services a great deal of Bitcoin liquidity. I want to tie this into one of the, the things you tweeted very recently, which is Bitcoin closing under its 50-month moving average. This is something that's never happened in any prior bear market. Um, now, you said it doesn't mean it's going to zero, just means that it's performing differently relative to each you know, relative to any prior cycle. Now, I think the phrase this time is different, not just encapsulates this, as you put it, but it encapsulates a lot of other things that have happened this cycle. Um, given the fact that we have sort of these these two things, one, one is great for Bitcoin in the long term, one is bad for Bitcoin in the long term, um, those being spot ETF approval and finances destruction, which may not be imminent or anything, but at least in jeopardy. Um, with those two things combined with Bitcoin's current price action, the macro outlook, where's your head at in terms of Bitcoin, the asset? Well, listen, I'll just I have to I feel like I'm always compelled to say this. I, I'm a long term structural, complete bull on Bitcoin. Like I, I think it really is the only solution to all this. But I also think it's important for new part market participants, for people that haven't been around um, for a long time to sort of be realistic, uh, realistic about the macroeconomic environment. And everybody says, you know, uh, that macro doesn't matter and all that stuff. I, I disagree, of course. Um, but but the larger issue is, you know, Bitcoin has, it, it's being affected by structural dynamics um, that isn't, we, we have no idea, right? We have no idea how some of this stuff is going to affect. We can't uh, forecast or give you price predictions and lines on a chart aren't going to account for uh, the fact that Bitcoin's, um, you know, the Bitcoin could face a real issue with the Binance uh, uh ecosystem potentially at, at jeopardy. Uh, to me, like, I, I think people should be realistic of these things. And the reason why I follow them very closely is because I'm not going to be disappointed if Bitcoin struggles for the next year, two years. I don't really care, to be honest. I think it's more time for accumulation. Um, I'm not going to say that there's something wrong with Bitcoin just because it doesn't uh, perform how it has in prior cycles. Um, first of all, I don't even believe the cycles are a thing, uh, for, for, but I know we may disagree on that, but I think there, there's just not enough data and it's, it's too young of an asset. And we kind of have made these narratives that, you know, will fall away, um, over time. They will not withstand scrutiny. Things like, you know, Bitcoin never trades below the prior all time high. Um, that was sort of a, a trope that now is, you know, sort of gone cause we did. Um, and I think, you know, from my standpoint here, I, I rather this all get cleared out long-term, even if it results in short-term pain, um, then have to keep, uh, uh, as uh, I think it was uh, either Tone Bays or uh, Tyler Jenks used to say, you know, you have all these barnacles on the hull of Bitcoin, these this, you know, altcoin ecosystem that is really just living off of uh, Bitcoin and uh, in a parasitic way. I'd rather that get cleaned out 
then uh, have to continue to struggle with all this, these bad actors. And there really are bad actors in the crypto space. I mean, I think there's a ton of people who would be much more inclined to invest in Bitcoin if you didn't have all the crap from uh, the, the shitcoin casino. I mean, it really does hurt Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, from my standpoint here, I'm just open to a wide range of outcomes, right? I'm not, I'm not fixated on this. Well, we're going into a happening, so we're going to pump, you know, 10x or 5x. It's guaranteed. Bitcoin's programmed to go up. I think it is programmed to go up, but it doesn't need to go up on your schedule or on some predefined schedule. Um, so that's just my view. That's just sort of my, you know, my LARPing on, on the macro side. But I'll just tell you, like from here, I think you're seeing in the Bitcoin price action um, hesitancy and uh, you're seeing some of these issues come uh, to light in terms of the regulatory issues and in terms of sort of uh, the exposure Binance presents. And Joe, the, the reason why I, th I, I say that is because look at what the NASDAQ and the S&P and other risk on assets have done while Bitcoin has struggled to even retrace 50% of its downcline. Um, downturn, right? Like Bitcoin's price action, although we had a great, everybody will point out, you know, it doubled in price for the beginning of the year. It's been stagnant for months in an environment where the remainder risk assets have performed reasonably well and unemployment has stayed low and the consumer demand has stayed strong. Why hasn't Bitcoin been able to even break above $30,000? And it's just because the it's nothing wrong with Bitcoin. It's just the overhang of some of these issues does affect the marketplace. And I'd be curious as to your thoughts on that. You know, I tend to agree. I mean, Bitcoin's underperformance compared to other risk assets is is certainly staggering because obviously Bitcoin historically in prior cycles has been the high beta risk on alternative. If you want really high uh, sensitive exposure to the move of the movements of the market, you're going to invest in Bitcoin. But this time around, when the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ are, have retraced most of their, their downturns and are threatening all-time highs, at least they were before a brief hiccup, um, and Bitcoin hasn't, it hasn't managed to do that. It's, it's managed to stay mostly range-bound, crab-walking, and mostly dominated by an obscene amount of leverage, record high leverage to spot ratio, then it begs the question, why is this happening? I think your succinct explanation of a great deal of hesitancy um, is uh, is certainly certainly plays a role in it. Bitcoin isn't acting like this high beta risk on asset that it has in prior cycles. And I think the public perception um, and the damage that was wrought over the course of 2023, uh, 2022 rather, with the domino collapse of all of these big fraudulent players, I think that has left a huge sour taste in investors' mouth um, that that not a lot of people have have factored in. They're still thinking of Bitcoin as the the rosy eyed asset from 2017 or even 2021, um, where it would go up uh, tenfold when the S and P 500 went up fivefold. Uh, but now it's behaving differently, and I think you you boil it down very very concisely as well, to why that is. Joe, think about the 20 you know 18 bear market, right? Bitcoin bottomed, as I recall. You probably have the right the exact numbers, so I'm just going to uh, give you a loose approximation. I believe Bitcoin bottomed in December of 2018, somewhere around 3,000, 3,200, somewhere thereabouts. Okay. And into June of 2019, I remember following very closely, Bitcoin went from the December lows of 3,200 to 13,000. Okay. That was uh, effectively a 4X, right? We did a 4X within six months. Now compare that to the current uh, situation, right? We bottomed uh, late last year. Uh, we've done a 2x and we've struggled to maintain the 2x. I mean, that to me, like if you're you're looking at that, uh, 
I think it's uh, it, it's telling you something. It's telling you that there are particular issues of the marketplace. And by marketplace, I mean the broader quote unquote crypto marketplace that are weighing on Bitcoin. What, what I see the Bitcoin price action, when I just really try to, from a, from a larger perspective, look at it, what I see is I see derivatives traders chopping it up as Dylan LeClaire, I think, tweeted something out about this. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, prop traders uh, <laughs> chopping each other up with, you know, leverage positions. You see, you know, wicks and, and crazy movement within a range. You don't see a lot of buy side um, bids from the spot market. And you also don't see a lot of sellers, right? A lot of the sellers have kind of been purged from the market. Uh, you don't see, you know, people desperate at this point. In, in, a, in a way, it's kind of, so you see this low volume environment, right? And the analogy I can think of right now for an asset is real estate, right? It reminds me kind of of, of real estate. Like in real estate, the market's effectively frozen. The volume has totally dried up. Um, if there's a new house on the market, uh, it, it likely gets purchased at a high price, but there's just so few sellers at this point because they don't want to give up their 2% mortgages, kind of like the Bitcoin hollers. They just don't want to sell because they're conditioned that, you know, we're going to go up from here, uh, that that is kind of frozen the market. And the same thing with real estate, it's because people are happy with their mortgages, they just don't want to sell. So from my standpoint, I think I wonder what starts to happen as unemployment starts to rise, as layoffs begin, if you enter a recession, there's a lot of young people, Joe, that have Bitcoin, right? And they're going, I, I know they want to be hodlers of last resort, but when you don't have a job and you're, you know, mm -hmm. 60, 70, 80% of your savings are in Bitcoin, you become a forced seller and that puts downward pressure on the market. Now, obviously you don't have a job. Interest has begun accruing on your student loans. You got to start repaying them, or you'll be considered yeah. delinquent. All of a sudden, your rate, your rent is much higher. You can't find a job. These things force people to sell, even if they do consider themselves the hodlers of last resort, as many may think they are. Correct. So again, I'm not saying we're going down to new lows. Please don't, you know, tweet at me on that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying there's reasons to be cautious. And while I haven't sold any Bitcoin, I'm not going to sell any Bitcoin. That's not my plan. I'm just telling you, I'm not going to be disappointed if in an extremely challenging macro environment, Bitcoin doesn't perform well in the short term, because I think there's at least a high chance that that's the, going to be the case. Of course, long-term bullish, near-term probabilistic about the very real crypto native and macro headwinds as the unemployment rate finally kicks up to 3.8%. Joe, leave us with your uh, your closing thoughts here um, on anything you want to chat about uh, that we haven't talked about already, ETFs, Binance, or, or just Bitcoin in general. Yeah, I, I think that the Grayscale win is a massive success. It tweeted this out. It should not have been taken as just sort of, well, that's that was expected. It was in the cards. Um, meeting the standard of arbitrary and capricious for a government agency is a high one. I've, as I say that as somebody who's tried to advance those types of claims and courts are loath to, to actually say that the government is acting in an arbitrary, capricious way. So to me, I expected fully once you got that ruling, a significant bull run. I thought we were going to finally break out into the mid thirties with that news. And then when we get the news of, or when we get the price action of Bitcoin selling off from there and selling back down, and I don't know what it's at today, but it was under 26 earlier today when we were recording this. Um, to me, that's, again, I don't discount market signals. When the market is saying something, I listen. And the market is telling you something's going on here. Now, it doesn't mean you have to panic. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's it's doomsday. But the market is giving you a signal, just like any other market, bond market, stock market, whatever. Um, they're all telling you signals, and you shouldn't ignore them. So for me, looking forward, 
I think that there's at least a reasonable probability here you could get a pivot for the SEC uh, in October. I will tell you this, if you don't get the pivot in October, in the middle of October, I do not expect there to be extremely uh, positive price action for the remainder of the year. That's just me. I think October is really a crucial threshold. I think you're going to see volatility in the Bitcoin marketplace. You're going to break us either higher or lower. Obviously, if we um, get an approval, that's that could trigger a, a bull run up up into the launch. And keep in mind, if you do read a headline in October, and we haven't done another podcast by then, that the uh, the approval of the SEC, uh, the approval of the spot ETF is coming to market. You still likely won't see it in 2023. You'll see it in 2024 when the products actually launch. It'll be 75 days or so after the approval. So to me, you're shaping up for a very big quarter in uh, not only the Bitcoin world, but in the macro world. Um, and, you know, keep stay tuned. Stay, stay with the Binance case, too. I mean, the Binance case could be the it could be the weight that's pulling us down, preventing us from breaking out above 30K players know that there are bodies buried there and that may soon come to light. Fantastic. Excellent. Thank you so much, Joe. We always love having you on the show. Speaking of October, there's this five factor convergence coming on US financial markets uh, all at the very beginning of October. New COVID lockdowns, rumored student loan repayments start October 1st. October 2nd, the government shuts down. October 4th, there's a nationwide emergency alert test. So What's October? A lot like, of what, I, I was reading this chart about volatility, Joe. It seems like October is like the, the uh, jam packed. Yes, yeah, seasonality. Always. It seems like it seems like after everyone comes home from their Labor Day weekend and they finally wake up from their September slumber, volatility seems to always kick in in October. Uh, it's Halloween. I'm going to blame it on the on Halloween. <laughs> it's got to be something around that time. Well, Joe, thanks again for coming on. Always a blast. Uh, and wow, oh my goodness, I, I have a feeling. With all this stuff brewing under the service, we'll have you on again very soon. Um, so uh, before we sign off here, where can people find you? You can Google my name, and I'll, I'm a partner in Amundsen Davis based out of Chicago. We have a national practice. If you have a litigated dispute, commercial, Bitcoin, crypto, otherwise, please reach out. I'd be happy to help. Um, in addition, uh, you can find me at Joe Carlosari on Twitter. DMs are open. Always happy to chat. And uh, I look forward to, uh, like you said, an explosive fourth quarter it's always fun when we get volatility rather than being stuck in a range right that's right absolutely well joe thanks again for coming on everybody he's a high quality follow on twitter and uh we'll talk to you soon man thanks take care joe special thanks to river for sponsoring this channel purchase bitcoin with zero fees when you dollar cost average and know your assets are held in multi-sig cold storage with 100 full reserves not letting it out to anybody you'll have peace of mind. Plus, River has their own built-in infrastructure, so they don't rely on third-party custodians. It's all in-house. There's a new standard in Bitcoin, and River is setting it. Get started at River by visiting river.com or by clicking the link in the video description.